welcome to another Health Advocate podcast from the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. I'm Krista Partell, Advocacy Director here at the AAHA, and today I'm sitting down with Professor John McDonough from Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Between 2008 and 2010, he served as a Senior Advisor on National Health Reform in the U.S. Senate on the Committee for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions where he worked on the development and passage of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as we often hear in the media. John also served as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives from 1985 to 1997, where he co-chaired the Joint Committee on Healthcare. John's currently in Australia running a series of executive workshops hosted by AWHA's Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research and the Harvard Club of Australia on leading reform during political change periods. Welcome to the podcast, John. Great to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. So to get started, from your experience, why are health systems increasingly complex and politically driven? Because healthcare is so, and medical care, are so central and important to everyone because we as societies accept that we want these systems to grow, to be able to better meet all of the diverse needs because the healthcare sector and related groups around it are relentlessly innovative and coming up with new ideas, new ways, new technologies, treatments, processes, and because there is so much unmet need out there and a continuous desire to try to get at it as much as possible, people not getting adequately served, diseases that we don't yet know how to treat, but the pioneers of innovation keep coming up with new ways, some successful, some not. But there's just a relentless drive on society to want to improve health and medical care for their own selves, for their families, and for everybody around them. Mm, A lot of changing expectations from, I guess, the public on what they expect from health systems. I guess a lot of different changes in diseases and conditions that are uh, treated from when, you know, health systems were first sort of formulated. And I know the Australian system and the American system are different, but I think there are uh, lessons that Australian health leaders can learn from your experience in the U.S. And we can learn from you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Thank you. So how are health leaders in Australia or the U.S.? How are they to understand or anticipate or respond to these challenges? Well, a lot of it is context. So you look at Australia versus the United States and some things just hit you in the face right away. So you folks have a form of universal health coverage so that everybody at least has basic coverage. Not true in the United States where just around 30 million of our 330 million people don't have health insurance at all. So that creates a very different dynamic throughout the system. But we are absolutely far and away the most expensive healthcare system on the planet, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly over the past 40 years, we're just way more expensive than everyone else. You are one of the least expensive systems on the planet among advanced industrialized nations. And so that creates then a whole other piece. Your essential public health, population health measures, indicators are, for the most part, substantially better than ours. You, have mm-hmm. better, you, spend, you spend about half of what we spend per person. Mm-hmm. You have better life expectancy, mm-hmm. better infant mortality, maternal mortality, fewer deaths from firearms, a lower smoking rate. Yeah. So on so many indicators with spending so much less, you're doing so much better than we are. A lot of people look at our system as the envy of the world because it's so advanced technologically, but that advanced technology is not leading 
to better health of people, which is really the bottom line in terms of what we want out of a healthcare system. It's to treat people when they're injured or ill, or to, and more importantly, to keep people healthy in the first place to avoid that. And your system outperforms ours, even though you spend so much less hmm. on a per person basis. So just that context then is a radically different starting point for talking about Australia yep. versus the United States. And I think that context is important. And I think there's always room for improvement in any health system, and especially in the Australian health system. And I think oftentimes we need to think of the context and think of how we, how we fit. And there's right. no perfect system. Yeah. There's no system where everything is great. If yeah. it is, they've got blinders on because there's always unmet needs and inefficiencies and problems and inequities yeah. for different populations or people. And so it's always worth keeping that in mind and keeping in mind the relative context of where you are, what your starting point is. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the Australian system, you know, we're doing quite well in various measures, but I think on the measure of equity, especially out-of-pocket costs, and you've probably heard that over the last few days that you've been here, that that's an issue here in Australia. And the Commonwealth Fund has uh -huh. uh, flagged that as an issue for Australia. Absolutely, yeah. So, and, and there's growing awareness around the world about, it comes under different names, healthcare disparities mm -hmm. in treatment and outcomes, healthcare inequities, different ways of looking at essentially the same problem, which gets at, you know, most of what keeps people healthy is not the medical care available to them, but how healthy and safe and secure is their housing, their diet, their ability to exercise, uh, their environment, the air around them. Yeah. All of those other what are sometimes referred to as the social determinants of health yeah. are just essential. And so it's important to invest in and improve the medical care to cure people when they're injured or ill yep. is also at least as important to invest in those systems to keep people healthy in the first place. Well, I think one of the challenges with the social determinants is that in the Australian experience, governments are siloed and, you know, a lot of the issues that lead to ill health actually aren't controlled by the health minister or the Department of Health. Absolutely. And that's why there's a trend over the past 20 years now that's sometimes referred to as health in all policies. Mm -hmm where some governments, uh, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, proactively connect health to transportation issues, to housing issues, to all of these other things, and consider health. Uh, we have some experts at our school back in Boston who are looking at the issue of healthy buildings and healthy housing. You know, we have a big focus on green buildings right now. Yep. That's a, you know, making buildings as environmentally productive and efficient as possible to avoid waste. But one of the things that happens when you've got a really tight A-plus green building is it's so sealed up mm. that there's not a lot of ventilation. And so if you've got a lot of people in there working all day, then the atmosphere in there changes because there's not the recirculation of air. And yep. it actually then makes people feel less well and lowers their productivity over the course of the day. Okay. And so we're actually, some of our people are expanding the notion from green buildings to healthy buildings, which incorporates the green elements, but then looks at the human health factors as well. And that's a really exciting growth area right now in terms of policy and innovation. 
It's interesting uh, unintended consequences then, and that happens all over health. So you've run two workshops now, one in Sydney, one in Canberra, and you have one more to go in Melbourne. Have you had any surprises in how uh, the Australian participants uh, have reacted to the course or issues that they've brought up that you've discussed or any memorable moments that you might bring back to the U.S.? I think it's all very compelling and it's fascinating. And we have been on this pathway now for a good 10 years in a really aggressive way in the United States, moving toward what's called value-based care, where we're trying to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, quality of the medical care that's delivered to the American people through a variety of different mechanisms, things called accountable care organizations, bundled payment, penalties on hospitals with high readmissions, all of those things. And we've been working on these now for the better part of a decade in a really aggressive way. And we know that in Australia, you folks are several years into that conversation and process. And so it's interesting how quickly folks here are thinking about this and moving ahead and coming up with creative ideas. And so what I try to offer are some of the lessons, not always positive, exciting lessons from the United States, because we're probably further down that pathway than a lot of other countries. And so we invite people to learn from us to avoid some of the pitfalls and mistakes that we've made on that path. Yeah, it's really good to link internationally to see best practice, but also what to avoid. And as you might know, next week, AAH is actually going to launch an Australian Centre for Value-Based Healthcare. Congratulations. Thank, Excellent. Very thank, exciting. Thank you very much. And our policy director, uh, Kylie Woolcock, has just finished a paper uh, looking at value-based healthcare internationally, but then setting it the scene for what it means in an Australian context, because obviously in the United States with the system that you have being mostly private and market-driven, I mean, obviously there's lessons to be learned there, but doesn't exactly fit the Australian mold. And then value-based healthcare in Europe, I mean, those are all very different systems either. So you can't really take a cookie-cutter approach and just bring something across. Yeah, you need to come up with something that's going to be a fit for Australia. Whenever you put in place a new policy, you know what you hope will happen, you know what you hope won't happen, and then you always have to be prepared for the pleasant and unpleasant surprises as you do it and the side effects that happen sometimes that become of considerable concern as it goes forward. In the uh, United States, we're putting penalties on hospitals that have a very high rate of readmission of elderly patients within 30 days after a hospital discharge. And we've discovered a lot of things that we really didn't necessarily know, such as that the control on readmissions might actually, for certain classes of patients, increase patient mortality. And so I think if we'd known that, then people would have been more cautious in terms of this headlong leap into let's create public policy to drive down avoidable, preventable readmissions. And it's doing that to some extent. And there's also surprises. Mm. Continuing on with surprises, you work on the development and passage of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as uh, we sometimes like to say. Um, Were there any surprises or or maybe not unintended consequences, but things that weren't anticipated that have resulted good or bad? Well, I think the big thing is it was a very heated controversy and process leading to passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And normally, after something passes, then, you know, both sides kind of put down their swords and shields and try to work on fixing the law. And instead, what we have seen in the wake of the passage of the Affordable Care Act is now about nine years of intense partisan conflict 
over the implementation of the law, repeated efforts to try to disassemble it and bring it down whatever way possible in a way that is, is it's hard to see a parallel in uh, American health policy history. We created this massive program in 1965 that we call Medicare, mm-hmm. though only for our senior citizens. And that was a very difficult, controversial fight. And after it was over, both sides then said, okay, this is what we've got now. Let's work on trying to make it work as well as possible. And it has been the mirror image. I think that reflects more than just healthcare policy and politics. It reflects the growing partisan divide in the United States that is intense and unending and relentless in terms of just how the parties are at each other's throats continuously in a way that really undermines much better policy making generally, not just in the healthcare space. Yeah, political debate and energetic feisty debate is always good, but you think all sides of politics would recognize that a healthy population leads to a healthy economy and more productive, healthy lives and citizens. Very different in the United States, a difference between the United States and not just Australia, but every other advanced nation is that in the United States, the notion that every citizen should have access to necessary medical care as a right is a contested proposition in the United States. And that's not true in Australia, and that's not true in any other European or other advanced nation you're going to find around the globe. It's a sense of, you know, yeah, whatever the problems, we've got to make this work because it's so essential, not just for people's lives, but for a productive, healthy workforce that then helps helps everybody, helps the whole economy to grow. And yet in the United States, we are still stuck in this place where we're still fighting about that core essential principle or value because it's not broadly accepted society. I think most people agree with it, but the very intense, large minority of people reject it and say, no, I'm responsible for myself. You be responsible for yourself. Good day to you. And please don't ask me for anything because I ain't going to give it to you. Yeah, cu- cultural differences, I guess. Culture, by the way, I defied the word culture. I lo- have a definition I love. Culture means the way we do things around here. One of the things that has struck me is at the start of every meeting, the introduction to the space, mm-hmm. the reconciliation. Uh, with the, the acknowledgement of country. The acknowledgement of country, which I had not recognized before, and I have been taken by it. Yeah. It's striking. It's been going on so long now, you probably, people are just kind of used to it, and it's kind of the landscape. But coming from outside, it's like, wow, okay, this is different. We should have that in the United States. We've got our own issues. I I think it's important when health leaders or people in the health space come together to acknowledge country. And I always like to tie it to the gap in health status between first Australians and the rest of the population. Health leaders need to be cognizant that in everything they do, they need to work towards closing this gap. I know different people uh, draw out different bits, but I, I do think it's important when health leaders come together to acknowledge country. I totally agree. Absolutely. So just final question. If you want health leaders here in Australia to have one key takeaway from your workshops or your time here or any of the learnings that you can share, what would that one key takeaway be? Bottom line, it's the health of the population that counts most. And the health system, the medical system, all of the things around it need to try to serve that higher principle and that goal as the first order. So one of the things that stands out in Australia that's a potential weakness is your increase in the rate of obesity, which is going up in the same 
same direction as the United States. The United States is just unbelievable. More than 70% of adult Americans are overweight or obese. And it's actually the obesity part that has been exploding in the past 20 years. The overweight is pretty stable, but the folks who are over the obesity level is just extraordinary. And so mechanisms that can get at that and start to slow down the direction you're going and maybe even try to reverse it would be really, I think, value added for the long-term benefit of the Australian people if it's not too arrogant for me to suggest that. Uh, so um, do you have any experience then with the sugar tax? Or? Oh, absolutely, yes. I've We've studied, I have some experts at the School of Public Health where I work who are leading analysts and scientists and researchers on it. Uh, the examples of uh, Mexico, Mexico City, uh, Philadelphia, other cities around the country and, and outside of it now has produced a lot of evidence that it's probably the single most potent effective thing that you can do in the short order to turn around the traditional trajectory. And one of the things that's happened in the United States that's really interesting is that people who've been advancing the public health goal of taxing soda to try to meet public health goals have then been targeting the money that's raised to support and enhance and advance public education. And that has just been a potent combination that has made these referenda that we call them, quite compelling and passing all over the place when they put those two together. So I I don't think there's anything you can, there's other things that you can do, but nothing that gives you the quick public health punch of substantial soda tax. Is there any uh, sugar production in the U.S. or are there any states? Oh yes, absolutely. Louisiana particularly comes to mind, but others as well in the South. And, And so then in the South, would they be more uh, resistant to such attacks? Well, there's resistance everywhere. Uh, It would be especially aggressive down there where it's more tied to the economy. And it's a controversial matter everywhere it goes because the soda industry has an enormous amount of resources that they use to try to politically undermine these uh, advances. Okay, maybe just one last question then on on the topic a bit more broadly. What about repurposing the the ingredients or taking out sugars and taking out sodium and fats from processed foods. I mean, a lot of people, it's not always the ideal thing to eat, but there is high sugar, high salt in processed foods. Has there been any work in the U.S.? In that sense, what's going on, and this was going on very much in the Obama administration with the First Lady Michelle Obama, was personally involved in pressing food manufacturers to make commitments on an annual basis to reducing sugar and salts and other ingredients on a voluntary kind of jawboning exercise in in compelling them to do it, not so much on the public space uh, in terms of public policy per se, except for our Food and Drug Administration uh, also trying to prod the food manufacturers as well. So lots of pressure in that way, but not so much the public policy piece, the sharp end of public policy piece has been the soda tax because it is understood now and recognized to be the most effective shortcut to try to do something to staunch the increase in obesity and begin to start to move it in another direction. In Philadelphia, they saw even taking into account people crossing the border into other surrounding communities, a 40% drop in sale of sugar-sweetened beverages oh. over the implementation of their tax. That's incredible. And maybe for our listeners, um, if they're interested in AWHA's position on a sugar tax or sugar-sweetened beverage tax, we have a position statement um, on our website. But thank you very much, John. You've been listening to another AWHA Health Advocate podcast. To check out 
out our website, visit uh, www.aaha.asn.au. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter by following at OzHealthcare with Oz being AU.